Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Fiction, science fiction, horror, fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery with your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino. John Copenhaver and Al Warren. Heard on KCB 106.5 FM Los Angeles. 102.3 FM Riverside. And 105.0 AM Palm Springs. Joining us now from Costa Rica, we have Richard Jukes talking about his book, Gabot Show. Thank you for joining us today, Richard. Well, thank you, Al, and thank you, Mike. I'm really happy to be here. Well, I, I'm happy to be here in Costa Rica, but I'm also happy <laughs> to be on the air with you. <laughs> yeah, good life down there. Uh, wow, so that's quite quite the experience you had. Um, let's let's talk about the name of the book. How did, how did that name come about? And maybe describe that to, for us. Gabacho is the word that northern. Mexicans use for gringo, you know, and gringo came from the word green coats, and when, when the Spanish-American War and the Americans were down there, they had green coats, uh, but gabacho was, it could be best described as a, uh, a sort of a heavyset Caucasian man with a camera around his neck and a Hawaiian shirt. That was their idea of an American that would cross over the border in Arizona and Texas and California and come over to buy Mexican food and take pictures. And the name, I don't exactly know how they developed it, but that's what the name meant. They called me Gabacho in a more endearing way. It wasn't so much of a, of a term of, you know, it wasn't a derogatory term. They used it, they used it to me. They called me Gabacho, even though there were other, there were two or three other Americans there, they, they called me Gabacho, all the Mexicans. <laughs> so that's what I titled the book. <laughs> wow. Now, how, now, so what made you decide to write a book about this experience? Well, it was, it was, a, it was a big part of my life. It changed me. Um, when I, you know, I'm, it changed me a great deal. 
And so I wanted to write about it. I started trying to write about it immediately, but I didn't, didn't have enough perspective. I tried to turn it into a movie, a film. I tried to turn it into a stage play. It just didn't work. And then years went by, and I ran into the, my writing partner, who gets you know who's on the book too, known as uh, the uh, the other author is listed as Brian Whitney. We connected over Craigslist one day, and we started talking. And he you know he he had done this kind of thing before. We decided to get together. I basically wrote it, but he acted as an editor, and uh, he kind of coached me through it and helped me. I hadn't written a book before, though I had written plays and screenplays. It was, a novel was a new thing for me, and it was I needed a little bit of coaching. And he was helpful there, and we could begin to see it come to life, you know, that way. Pretty interesting. Uh, maybe maybe describe a little bit about what happened and and the time that this happened in. This was in the you know the late seventies, and I was still in college, and my roommate, you know, together he and I were. Um, playing poker one night with a bunch of guys from the theater department. We were all in theater and um, drinking wild turkey, and we were smoking some marijuana. And I don't know. I just blurted out, hey, let's go to Mexico. Let's all go down to Mexico and buy some cocaine. We'll bring it back and start our own theater group. We were, we were mad at the very conservative theater group, theater department, and it was uh, Utah's very conservative, and we wanted to do experimental theater, and we were all, you know, complaining about it to each other and talking about how we could do this and we could do that. I blurted it out in, in the middle of the game, and everybody says, yeah, let's do it, let's go down, let's do that. And the next day when I called them all, everybody says, what, are you out of your flipping mind, Jukes? We're not going to do that. Except for my roommate, he said, yeah, let's do it. We looked at each other and we thought, well, all right, let's give it a shot. So we took off a couple of months later. Did you actually and, uh, did you actually plan that like uh, seriously plan it or did, were you trying to get out of it? No, we had we had no plan. We just thought we could go down to Mexico, hang out on the beach. Uh, we had a, a Ford Bronco. We were going to try to trade the Bronco. Maybe we just thought, oh, we could you know do it. We could get down there. Just a couple of dumb guys, really. I mean, for for two guys who had been. You know, we had done well in high school. He was a high school football star. I'd gotten high grades. We were doing well in college. We were in a lot of plays, and we were both successful. Didn't make any sense, really. And at the time, I didn't know even what I was doing. Looking back now, I see there were a lot of problems, a lot of emotional problems I had, a lot of difficulties in dealing with my family and the way I was raised and trying to figure out how to to put... Some perspective on that and I think it was more a, a sort of a rebellion against that conservative Mormon upbringing than anything I'm gonna do this because I can do it and to hell with the rest of you and um, and we just went down there without a plan went to Puerto Vallarta and Mazatlan hung out on the beach and everybody turned us down what are you out of your mind we're not gonna get cocaine for you nobody wanted to talk to us they thought we were nuts or narcs, you know. I mean, every every guy we met on the every Mexican kid we met on the beach, you know, our age, we'd we'd smoke some pot, and then we'd bring up, hey, can we buy cocaine? Can we trade our truck? No, no, no. You're out of your mind. Leave us alone. What are you, narcs? Finally, we we found some guy, and he was willing to take us into the jungle. And so we we met him that night. Went deep into the jungle for three, four hours, and. 
I, I, I believe that we encountered, you know, um, the, the car, you know, people from the cartels and they were totally different. They were dressed nice. They, they were articulate. They were sharp guys. <laughs> they came out and, and we didn't have anywhere near enough money to buy an ounce of cocaine. We had no idea. And they, they just about, I thought we were going to get shot. They were so angry. And um, we had wanted an ounce of cocaine. We had like $500. And they were, they were just, they just looked at us like we were crazy. And they had guns and we didn't have any, we weren't armed at all. And uh, it just got really tense for a moment. And finally the kid we'd met on the beach said, well, why don't you take marijuana? So they shoved a big box of marijuana in our car, and we just took off. <laughs> and then got back to the, got back to the hotel and said, "We got to get out of here. We're, I think they're going to chase us down." So we we just dumped our stuff in the back of the Bronco, and we had two gas tanks, and so we filled it up and took off and did not stop. We threw our urine out the window. We just, I mean, we just wanted out of Mexico because it, it was really scary. I mean, it was that they were. I, I don't. There was no reason for them not to kill us. They could have killed us, taken the money, and taken the Bronco. And to, to this day, I have no idea why they didn't. We were way back in the jungle. No, no one knew we were there. We didn't tell hardly anybody we were leaving, so no one knew where to find us or anything. So it was just, just young guy stupidity, you know, that you do when you're drunk and stoned and young and crazy and wild and. And we just uh, we made it out of those guys and got caught by the federales. So that's kind of the, the short story. <laughs> well, that's crazy. Um, so, what was your what? What did you actually think you were going to get away with? Do you actually think it was going to be simple and then get it across the border? Yeah, we thought an ounce of cocaine could easily be hidden. We we thought maybe we would. Oh, we I had a the guy we we. We had a, a dealer that we bought marijuana from, just a young guy, you know, college guys. And we, um, he told me that he had gone to Mexico and bought a couple of keys and brought it back by taking out his headlights and sticking it in the panels. And I thought, well, huh, that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> so I said, I told him at the poker game, I said, all we got to do is just hide it in the panels. They'll never find it. And we'll just drive across. There's so many people crossing the border with just a couple of guys, a couple of college students on a Christmas vacation. They won't search the car. And, you know, probably at the border they wouldn't have, and we'd probably have made it across the border, as a lot of people do. But we got caught at the aduana, which is different. A couple hundred, you know, it was about 120 kilometers south of the border, just by the city of Hermosillo. They have these occasional roadblocks they set up to catch people, and they're prepared to search really well. And, and so they stop you, and they just ripped the car. They ripped the Bronco, and I, I had no idea that many pieces could, could come off a car. I stood there and watched them just take my car completely apart, and the marijuana was just sitting in the back. We didn't even hide it. We just The box was so damn big. We were just sitting in the back of the Bronco. We thought we were going to... We weren't even sure we were going to, we, we hadn't even decided to keep it. We just threw it in the back of the car, headed for the border, and we were uh, just so tired. We'd been up the night, all night the night before, and the night before that we had partied, so we were just whipped and worn out. And when we got to uh, the aduana, they just pulled us over, found the marijuana, then they were ruthless. Well, they put, 
I had to go to the bathroom so bad because I hadn't stopped in 12 hours. And they put a couple of AK assault rifles to my head and said, okay, and stuck me over in front of a bus and made me pull my pants down with handcuffed behind my back. I had to pull my pants down, take a crap right there in front of a tourist bus with the AK-47 sticking in my temples. Most guys just laughing, you know, the whole time. It was crazy, and we just thought, "Oh my gosh, this is, this is, this is just, this is the adventure we thought we. <laughs> this is an adventure, but not the one we were looking for." No. Yeah. Oh wow. So yeah, that's uh, that sounds uh, a, like a little more than you bargained for, for sure. Oh, oh, you know, just the reality slapped us in the face. You know, we were we had. No plan. Didn't know what we were doing. We were down there breaking the law. We're in a foreign country. We don't speak the language, and all of that just slapped us in the face in that moment. And it was, yeah, it was, it was, um, it was crazy. One of those moments in life where you go, "Wow, this is going to change my life forever," and it really did. Not necessarily for the worse, but but it did change me a lot. So. We went in after that. They, you know, they took us to prison, and we were we were there for quite a while. Then transferred to uh, America in San Diego, and were there for a few months, and then got out, went back home. I was on parole for a couple of years. Uh, when actually, when they um, arrested you, and that uh, did you have a trial, and was it everything that uh, you expected it to be? No, you don't really have a trial. It's not like a trial by jury there. It's a different uh, criminal justice system. You have a lawyer, and he goes to the judge and presents the case. And uh, there was no reason for us to try to fight it. I mean, they found the marijuana right there in our car. If you fight it, sometimes it takes years. And the sentence for the minimum sentence for marijuana was seven years. And our, our, our sentence that was actually handed down to us was seven years, three months. But um, they have so the, the the lawyer goes to the judge. He presents the case, and then and then there's a lot of paperwork, and it takes forever. Um, we pleaded guilty because we heard from many people, including the American consulate, that the best thing to do is to plead guilty if they can. If you have if you have no chance, and we didn't have a chance, plead guilty, get a sentence, and then try to apply for the international transfer which is a prisoner exchange program between the U.S. and Mexico. So Mexicans, Mexican nationals arrested in the U.S. can go back to Mexico and serve their sentence there and, and vice versa. So that's what we did, but we had, you have no idea when that's going to take place or if it will take place in that particular year. And so we, we, our sentence was handed down seven years, three months, but we, we could have been there you know, two or three or four years, or even maybe the whole seven years if something happened to the transfer. Fortunately, it, we did, a transfer did come up pretty soon, and we applied for the transfer and made it to San Diego. And we, the only time we went to actually see the judge is as at the very end, we they take us in to see the judge, and we um, admit to everything or verify everything that our lawyer has presented to the judge, and then he gives us a sentence. That's that's the only time we had any kind of thing that might resemble a trial. Wow. Um, how long did you spend in a Mexican prison total? So that was about nine months, 
and then uh, three months in Mexico. Hmm. I mean, uh, San Diego, sorry. Yeah. Um, so now, what's your experience in the prison itself in Mexico? How were you treated um, as an American? You know, we, we were pretty fortunate. That particular prison was a extremely difficult just the year before. I, I, had, I, I made friends quite quickly. I jumped in and started making friends and getting involved in plays and producing things and making, you know, we, we, we actually started a theater group and we built a theater and we presented plays to the, the families that came to visit on Sunday. And, um, and so I kind of became, you know, I, I don't know what you would title it, a trustee. Even, I even gave the warden, I taught the warden English classes. Um, my my roommate went the opposite direction. He couldn't take it, and he tried to escape and was shot. So there's, you know, for me, it was it was it was difficult because I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know when I would get out. You're locked up. You do have some problems. There are definitely bad guys in prison. You're going to have to fight once in a while. That's that's a problem. The guards pretty much leave you alone in Mexico, and some prisons are okay. Some are horrible. And the inmates run the prison, and if they're, you know, super, super bad guys, then, then the prison is horrible. In this particular moment, the prison was okay. The, guy, the other inmates running the prison were not bad, and they were, they were cool. And so our time wasn't horrible. But we transferred to a prison in Tijuana on the way to San Diego, and we were there for a week, and that one was really dangerous and very difficult. And the, there was a lot of, you know, there were, you know, beatings and stabbings and, you know, fighting over drugs and turf wars and all kinds of things in that prison. And, and so it was just, it, it goes that way in Mexico. Some are good, some are not good. That, I went back to visit that same prison in Hermosillo years later. They wouldn't even let me anywhere near inside the prison. I wanted to go in and just kind of, talked to the warden. It had completely changed in just a few years and was now just very dangerous. Lots of, lots of killings and fights and difficulties inside. And so we were fortunate. Wow. So what was, um, what was the most, I guess, memorable (laughs) part of being in prison? Well, in my case, it was my theater group, and because I the first day in prison, the first day we got there, we 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 thought we were going to have to fight our way in, and we what they just dumped us inside. There was no, there's no, there's no format. There's nobody that takes you in. You don't go through a process. They just open the gate and push us in, pushed us in. We had our bed rolls. I had a guitar. We had some of our belongings. They the federales kept the Bronco and a lot of us, a lot of our personal items, but we did get some things. So there we were standing there with our sleeping bags and, a, and a, some of our clothes and a guitar strapped around my back. And I said, I'm going to take this guitar off. I'm going to have to use it as a club. And we thought we were going to have to fight our way in. And we were standing there just inside the prison gates, and we saw these two guys coming toward us. And we said, we looked at each other and we said, okay, here it goes. They come bopping up to us, and there was, they were carrying something big. It was shiny. I thought it was some kind of a, you know, a club or something. When, I, when they got to me, it was a boom box, and they were playing you know, Jimi Hendrix. And they walked up to us. They're both very cool guys, long hair, and they said, Hey, Gabacho, want to smoke a joint? 
they said that in, in Spanish. And I thought, oh, my God, I just got put into prison for marijuana. And I've got these two guys bopping up to me with a boombox asking me if I want to get high. So, of course, we did. We went with them. And they took us around the prison, showed us everywhere, climbed up on top of the cell blocks. There, was, there were no rules inside, and there were no guards inside. And later that evening, we went to somebody's cell, and man, I mean, 30, 30 guys showed up at this cell, and they were just hanging everywhere inside the cell, just masses of guys to meet the two new gringos, gabachos. And we couldn't speak to them, and they couldn't speak to us, and we tried to communicate, and, and they saw the guitar, and they said, well, play us a song. And I picked up my guitar, and I was, I thought, wow, geez, what should I play, blues? Uh, what, what are they going to know? And somebody, they had just, seen a performance of Jesus Christ Superstar on television and somebody blurted out Jesucristo, Jesucristo <laughs> and I just happened to, I, I happened to know the, the Gethsemane song that, that the character Jesus sings that you know was done by Ian Gillen, Gillen of Deep Purple right. <laughs> that, that whole just pour out, just scream you know, that top of your lungs i knew that song and i started playing that song on the guitar because i and i tell you it was like being you know it was like going through that moment and i just poured my heart into that and sang and screamed out the notes and yeah and at the end of the song they jumped up and clapped and screamed and hooted and hollered Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I tell you, that moment just changed 
for me, everything that my life is going to be about in prison. And from then on, we went on to, to form, you know, some theater group, a music group, and we presented plays and stuff to the outside. And then my partner, he went the other way. He, he just couldn't handle it. And he tried to escape and was shot. Wow. Uh, so how, how did, um, how do you think that theater helps? Um, what was the biggest uh, change that it brought to the prison? You know, it's interesting. Uh, we didn't do, we did like a scene from The Odd Couple. And we rewrote it to be two guys in prison sharing a cell together. So Oscar and Felix are now in this prison cell and they're, and they're sharing this cell and all the little things they have to go through and mm-hmm. deal with. We, we used the humor from, you know, from the, uh, Neil Simon's The Odd Couple, but we changed it and rewrote it. And we presented it on Mother's Day for the audience. And, and in Mexico, the, in, the families can come right into that part of the prison. They came into the auditorium. It was packed. It must have been three, 400 people. And we got up and did a bunch of different things, some, some poetry readings and some musical performances. They hadn't, seen, they hadn't done this before because the auditorium didn't work as a theater. We, had to, we put egg cartons everywhere to baffle the sound. We made our own lights. We built a projector out of an old... We built a spotlight out of an old film projector that was discarded. The prison had a big garbage dump, and everything that had been taken to the prison or brought to the prison by inmates or guests often just got dumped into to this pile of trash. And we went through that trash and found bits and pieces of wood, old egg, egg cartons, all kinds of stuff. And we built this, we turned this auditorium into a theater and where you could actually hear because no one, they couldn't do performances of any kind because it was so, the acoustics were so bad, it just reverberated over and over and you couldn't hear anybody on stage. So they all wanted to come and see what we had done and they were nuts when when the two people we 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 I cast a couple of guys who had been who had fought with the police they were they had been considered terrorists during the the uh, the years that Mexico had its you know anti it was a, they were students but they had been, there was a big massacre in Mexico City in 1968 and a lot of students were killed and so a lot of students went out and started fighting with the police and they were branded terrorists. These two were caught and put in prison and given life sentences. And, and they had been in a cell together for over a decade. And when they got up and presented this odd couple scene, you, you could have heard a pin drop because the audience was just hanging with us to hear these two guys. But it was the, it, it was the way we had taken the real odd couple and turned it into our odd couple that made it work it, and that's how we made theater work making it our own making the shows the plays the things our own and presenting them uh, in a in, in as in as you know in as professional a way as we could inside a prison gave these guys hope gave them something to focus on because a lot of times, and I say this in my book, one of the reasons I ended up there is I, didn't, I was not focused. I didn't know what I wanted to be. I'd, maybe an actor, maybe a director, maybe a writer, maybe a musician. But a lot of guys end up in prison because they don't have focus. They don't know what they want. They just want something. And they're willing to go out and take it from somebody else and often end up in prison. And in this, you cannot do theater 
if you, if you can't focus. You've got lines to memorize. You're up on stage. All the people are making noise. You've got all of this going on, and you have to be crystal clear in your focus. And it really helped people both in Mexico and later on in Utah learn to get that kind of focus and have a, and have a solid goal. We're going to rehearse this play for this many months, and then we're going to perform it. And having that goal out there ahead with that kind of focus really helped all of us. How did your how did your family feel about you being arrested and being in prison and all that for this? Oh, sure, they were they were horrified. They're very conservative Mormons. They had you know not even neither my mother nor my father had even tasted a drop of alcohol in their lives, yet alone any kind of drugs. And so they were that kind. You know, you can imagine this kind of person, and they were. But they had already experienced some of that. I had been, uh, you know, wild in high school, and I had left the Mormon Church early, and and so they were already disappointed. And of course, the, you know, this was the this was the big deal. This was the thing that resonated throughout all my family. Oh, you know, cousin Rick is is in prison in Mexico. It was a big deal. Yeah. But they came down to Mexico. They drove down to see me at, at, at least two or three times and helped me and brought me stuff and to be honest with you the first time they came they were scared to death they had to go through a strip search and that's pretty hard for mormons because they wear you know special underwear and then they came inside and then they saw me and i think for the first time in a, a, a decade i actually hugged my parents because we you know we had this coming together and it was after i got out of prison that i was able to say to them, look, I don't believe what you believe, but I love you and I want to be your son. I want to, you know, have some kind of a relationship. I just want to believe what I believe. I want my life to be about my philosophy, not yours. And we never discussed religion after that. And that was good because I could finally center myself on the things that I believed philosophically and 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 I didn't want to try to change them, and they didn't try to change me anymore. And we finally got along after all, after many, many years of fighting and screaming and yelling at each other. So what do you, what do you hope that people get from your book? Like when they go to read your book and after they finish, what is it you hope they take home? Well, a couple of things. I hope guys, younger guys, get a chance to read it, and people in, in the arts will read it and say, you know what, you do have to have focus. You know, No matter what you're doing, you've got to have a goal. And even if you change it, have a goal, have focus. Occasionally I teach. I'm teaching uh, at the local high school down here now in, in Costa Rica, and I one of the things I say to the kids, pick something. Have a goal. Go for it. I don't care if you want to be an actor or singer or you want to be a, an engineer. Decide now that's what you want to be and then change it. But have it now. Have a goal. Have a focus. You have to have a goal. You have to focus or you'll go nowhere. You'll flounder. And the, and the other thing that I'd like them to take away is that, you know, it isn't going to work to just put people in prison and just lock them up and throw away the key. I, I just don't see that working. Eventually, people get out. You know, unless we're willing to build an awful lot of prisons and just house people forever, those people are going to come back out on the street, and we would do better 
to try to help them become better people while they're inside. And I think, I personally think the performing arts is a good way to do it. And I saw them engage with each other. When I was at the Utah State Prison for four years, they gave me the keys to the auditorium. I picked up women from the women's facility, walked them over to the men's facility, walked inside through the the men's prison with all of the men leering and shouting at them, got inside the auditorium and locked myself in the auditorium with 25 inmates, no guards. And I did that for four years. The guards, I think, said, you know, if he gets killed, let him get killed. They they didn't really care. And I never had a problem. I never had one problem, not assault, not anything. And we did our plays, and the people were, they they really got into it. And they were, we presented our first play to the public. They got up on that stage. Before they walked out on the stage, I watched these hardened criminals. I mean, there were, there were guys that had committed murder and all kinds, everything. And... We were backstage, and the auditorium filled up with people who had come out to the prison to see the play specifically, an invited audience of the public, and they were shaking. They were so scared. Big, mean, angry guys and women that could just tear your head off, and they would come to me in tears, shaking, Richard, Richard, what do we do? What do we do? And I had to give each one of them a hug and say, you're going to be great. Around all of these inmates, they go out on the stage, they do the play, they get a standing ovation, and they're just so excited when they came back. It worked. They said, this is working. This is good. This is something. It gave them something to focus on. And when one of my guys got out of prison, I, he stayed around Salt Lake for a couple of years. He was from Pennsylvania. I, I met him at a bar with with one of the other guys, the two of us, the three of us were out having a beer, and they'd, they'd been released, and um, they, one, they, he was out of the halfway house, and the other guy was out of the halfway house by then. This was a year after they got out. They both hung around for a few more months. We went out to this bar, and we were having a couple of beers, and a theater, and a friend of mine from the university came walking up to us, and he'd seen the play, and he came over and wanted to congratulate him, he sat down and started to have a beer and started to talk about theater. And the one guy, Joe, who, was, who had been in there a long time, he had been in there 30 years, he, he, uh, he, he turned to us and he says, you know what it is for me? And he had a job by now. He was working part-time and he had, you know, had a little apartment. He says, I've got something to talk about. He says, if I want to meet a girl or call my family on the phone, I can tell them about the plays I did. Not just my crime, not just my time. I've got something real to talk about. And that just smacked me in the face. That that's it. That's it. They, they have something to talk about that they did inside that wasn't just about the time and the crime. Now, so do you find that this kind of uh, program, the theater work that, that you've done, it helps in both types of prisons, both in the U.S. and Mexico? Yes, it did. It helped them both. I wasn't able to do it in San Diego, and the tension there was really high, and it was a, a miserable place. But um, I thought it was it was very helpful. Even now, I I'll get I just when this book was published, 
um, a couple of friends of mine from Mexico who, who still live in Mexico and follow me on Facebook sent me little notes. Congratulations, my dear friend Richard. We love you so much for what you gave us. Um, that's, you know, this is what, almost 40 years ago. And um, they still remember that. And people still talk about the plays we did in their circle. <clears throat> their circle of friends. Yeah. Pretty amazing. Um, so now, what made you move to Costa Rica? <laughs> well, after after that experience, I gained a great love for Latin America, the food, the people. I mean, I really liked it. And my wife and I had thought for years we would move back to Mexico. And when we got into our, you know, uh, later years and decided we were finally ready to, to do it, we um, looked around Mexico and, and looked at a couple of places and and um, we'd been to Costa Rica a couple of times on vacation and finally selected Costa Rica. Mostly, I think, out of um, the piece of property that we found. We could be by the ocean. It was a nice piece of... I have a very beautiful wooded lot overlooking the ocean and it isn't quite as expensive as it would have been in Mexico, and and uh, it is a community of um, a lot of expats live here. So there's a, a community of about a thousand Americans and Europeans who live in this little town, and so the town itself supports has a lot of um, you can the, the gro- local grocery store will import things that we all want to buy. So there's there were all of those reasons, but I think that the initial reason was the love that I gained for Latin American. Latin America and Latin American people while I was in the Mexican prison. When you, when you look at the U.S. now from Costa Rica, uh, how do you feel about the justice system? Do you think the prisons are getting better or worse? Well, I think the prisons have gotten worse in the U.S. I think the tough-on-crime policy that was initiated in the 80s didn't really work. We have more people in prison. I, I, just, I think there's... I just don't think the criminal justice system is working that well. I think uh, it, I think it should be. You know, I, I don't know what I don't know what all the issues are, and I'm not sure that I'm, you know, capable of answering uh, all of those questions. I think that again, people are going to get out of prison eventually, and we'd do better to try to help them understand how to be better people, and and it's going to be different for everybody. Maybe somebody needs vocational training, but one of the things about the arts is it's a gentle thing. It's a soft thing. It creates emotional connections between people, and I think I think that's something that's lacking in a lot of people who end up in prison. They don't have those emotional connections, and I, I could go through my... I, I probably worked with 50 people at the Utah State Prison over the four years, and I'll bet 40 of them all came from some kind of broken family. You know, some kind of difficulty, either they were, you know, they were orphaned or they were, you know, abused or they were, you know, didn't only had one parent and um, and their ability to make emotional connections with other human beings was was seriously impaired. And one of the things about the arts is that can that can help that because you have to connect with somebody on stage or you're just going to look like crap. You're not your character isn't going to work at all. And so it, it helped that. 
Now, do you have a website or something that people can go to or a Facebook page that you want to uh, share with the listeners? Um, whew, I don't have a website. Um, that's an interesting <laughs> idea. Just my, just my book. I have my book website. On, if they want to buy the book, I guess I could, that's the only thing. I have, um, it's on Amazon. If yeah. you go to Amazon and you, and you enter Gabacho Jukes, you'll get to my um, book page. It's not a very expensive book, and it's uh, a lot of, I've gotten a lot of good feedback from people who have read it. I think there are a lot of other things in the book about, you know, what it's like to be human, and I think, um, I think it makes a good read, so I do have that. <laughs> okay. Well, and, and... I, That's a good idea, though. I, <laughs> well, that's what I, we're... I probably should start a Facebook we're, page. We're here to help. Um, <laughs> okay. The, um, but uh, we, we will have your book up on our website, uh, a quick link, so anybody listening can just go one click, pick up the book. And, um, great. And that's great. So uh, it's been an interesting story, and we're, we're glad you took some time to tell us about it. Um, our guest has been Richard Jukes, and the book has been called, is called Gabacho. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you, Al. Thank you, Mike. I'm so happy to, that you uh, contacted me. It's been, it's been just super. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, all shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.